0: a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table.
1: Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Katie. I'm a person living with an AR arthritis disease. I'm a reoccurring co-host on the show and a very proud member of the AR arthritis team, working as a senior programs and communications manager. In this episode, we're going to listen to a segment featuring myself, along with my fellow patients, Tiffany, Deb, and Patrice, as we get Zoom-bombed by rheumatologists, Dr. Kim and Dr. Sparks. But as we're all equals here, we just call them Al and Jeff. This is a special hybrid episode that is not only a part of our Roomie Round series, but it's also part of our Go With Us program, where we invite you to join us at scientific conferences so that together we can solve problems impacting education, advocacy, and research for everyone in the AR arthritis community. This episode comes from one of those conferences as part of the EULAR debriefing session. During this conversation, we have a heart-to-heart discussion about the challenges both patients and rheumatologists face during office visits. We talk about the constraints of time, its impact and effect on communicating during office visits, and how many patients a rheumatologist can see in just a single day.
2: So we are in the middle here of, we do these debriefs, patient-led debriefs on the sessions that have been happening at ULAR. Not Kitty
3: ULAR? <laughs> no. No? <laughs> Fine. Fine. I'll talk about this.
2: <laughs> oh, So as we we were actually just on the topic on the sessions of how to effectively communicate with your patients. And we were talking about what we like from the consultation. And then they were in, in the session, the doctors were sort of talking about what a, does a doctor plan for. And I think this is a really good time to just ask you all because we were just saying, you know, we only have these 10. I feel lucky my rheumatologist. I usually get to see for like 20 minutes or longer, which is. So here we have Dr. Al Kim, Dr. Al or Al. Who he is, he is known for. We also have Dr. Jaffrey Sparks um, joining us today. So thank you also for- Also
3: known as Sparky. Oh,
2: well that's new. <laughs> also me. known as Alfredo. <laughs> and, and Al has been on our talk show many, many times. We've had the honor to have Jeff on there as well when we talked about COVID. And I thought if we're gonna talk about patient communication, you know, with our rheumatologist, why not invite a couple of them to the table to go over with these debriefs. So in addition to that, we also Jeff had won an award, which we did a shout out and our first and um, our first UR review on an abstracted COVID and Al has some amazing research happening with COVID. So we thought what a great opportunity just to have them also talk about that. But before we get to it, let's finish the conversation on the communication. So essentially we were talking about you get 10 to 20 minutes with your doctor. It is like, we prepare for this. We have all these questions we're coming in with shared decision-making came up as something that's super duper important, but does every doctor do it? So I'd like to ask both of you and I mean, we'll start We'll start with Alice, my actual rheumatologist. What does a doctor plan for when you're going in for that 10 to 20 minutes?
3: So essentially, we're looking at macro therapeutic issues. I think that's the first and foremost. Have we optimized medications, particularly steroids? You know, everything is trying to get everyone off of steroids. So, you know, we have a kind of a macro plan in place over months or even, you know, past a year where we think it should move to. Of course, there are a lot of surprises. And so we are trying to develop contingency plans around those little surprises so to me, that's like the first thing I, I look for. The second thing that I look for are like health maintenance issues in rheumatic diseases, cardiovascular diseases, it remains the leading cause of death. And so minimizing, you know, trying to optimize blood pressure, you know, lipid profiles, These kind of what we call healthcare maintenance issues. We're just trying to make sure that we're moving in the right direction, or if we've met goal, you know, trying to develop a plan to be able to make sure that if there are any side effects, how do we manage them? Or if there aren't any, then it's perfect. The one that is really difficult to anticipate, and this is largely what ends up coming up as a discussion for a lot of patients, is more of the uh, experience or the emotional aspects of living with disease and its impact and quality of life, that is very highly unpredictable. Also, there's, we don't have a lot of tools to be able to address them, as well as we can address the other two topics that I brought up before, right? You know, and then nested within, there are going to be any new complaints that, of course, we can't anticipate for that either. So, you know, to me, like the first two things, I feel like we can, you know, cover pretty quickly in five minutes, and then we try to focus the rest of the you know, the discussion on then the issues that you bring in that you feel like are important that need to be addressed at that at that visit.
4: Can I ask Dr. Kim a question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I mean, or can... Al.
3: You can call me Al. Yeah.
4: Okay. Hi, Al. I'm
2: it, took me, it took me a couple months. I, that's why the progression, Doctor, Not, Dr. Kim, no, it Dr. took you a lot more than
3: a couple Al. months. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so um, I have had RA for 10 years now. You had briefly just touched on the emotional aspect of the patient, which I am so glad. I'm seeing more and more of that and I'm so glad it's been addressed. I do have a degree in psychology, but as a person, you know, we all have very low moments in our lives, whether it's dealing with our disease or just what's going on in our lives. And that to me, that all factors, and then the stress also all factors in with how I feel. And also as a person who maybe four or five years ago decided that life wasn't worth living. And so uh, I, that could probably be a whole nother talk show. But I'm just glad that you as a rheumatologist are recognizing that. And thank you.
3: Yeah, I think we try to address it. We don't necessarily know how to fix it. And that's kind of where my frustration then comes into play. I mean, there's also the flip side about, you know, the days that Jeff and I have. You know, like we get a, we, a big grant doesn't get funded or, you know, it's just, you know, queer things or even personal things happen. We're trying to do our best to shield ourselves from exposing that to you guys because it's really about the patient. But I do have moments where I feel like I just I don't want to deal with anything else. I, I don't my bandwidth is saturated. You know, and, but unfortunately I, you know, we, we can't choose those moments. So there is that side too, about, you know, kind
0: of the a
2: human, I mean, a very human aspect to, to it as, as well. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a great point. Okay. So Jeff, tell us about you, how you prepare, how long are your typical, by the way? Are they 10, 20, 20 minute 20?
5: return visits, okay. 40 minutes for news. Okay. And actually I think that's something that's always on my mind is, is there going to be adequate time? and I actually really appreciate when patients are really prepared and we can really um, optimize all the time we have together. And obviously there's a lot of extraneous factors as far as travel and parking and vitals and forms. And and it's actually relatively rare if we actually get the entire 20 minutes, you know, right on schedule. And obviously some patients have really, you know, complicated visits that obviously can push things around. So it is really a delicate balance. And I tried to obviously a balance you want to give all the time and attention you can but you know certainly there's some patients you could spend many hours with and it's just not feasible for that so i think that is something that's inherent to our medical system at the moment at least maybe Mm -hmm. there's people who can solve that but the two things i really want to accomplish at every visit is to really get a full interval history between the last time i saw them and to really make sure that the medications they are taking are what, uh, what I think they should be on. So I really spend a lot of time about medications. And I like to hear from my patients to say, what are you taking? When are you taking it? How many pills? Because I think it's really easy to just sort of assume that they know what you're on. And it's really, there's a a lot of communication barriers. So I, I like to really just nail that down, you know, really early on. Uh, And then getting the interval history and if there's someone where things are going pretty smoothly, that's, you know, 30 seconds. But obviously, if there's someone that's had a rocky road and haven't been there in a while, that could take many minutes, if not 20 minutes or more. So I think at the very bare minimum, I want to accomplish those things And, and obviously getting a really accurate assessment of what their current disease state as far as whether they have inflammatory arthritis or vasculitis or, you know, whatever organ is involved and obviously surveying for other ones where maybe they, the patient themselves might not be super aware of and trying to think about, you know, how, which labs and imaging might be pertinent to try to sort of catalog their involvement. And then certainly the health maintenance is something I want to approach at every single visit. But as you can see, the, the 20 minutes just can really, can really go away quickly. And uh, that's why, that's why we, we see patients many times. And I think sometimes you just have to recognize you can't accomplish everything in 20 minutes and maybe coming back in a few weeks or a few months, even if things are relatively stable is, is a really good idea. You'd rather have more time than not enough.
2: Right. I've got a couple things here that I, I, I do this. I write a lot of yeah. notes. I, I really uh,
5: when enjoy when patients
2: these, bring their list. One of, the, yeah. one of the themes of UR has been, and I saw it at ACR too, but it, it was definitely magnified here was comorbidities. And then they also talked about multimorbidities, which was putting the patient in the center when you might have something like anxiety that's not disease related. So, you know, you're dealing with these, these other issues, but they also started talking a lot about this holistic treatment a lot of diet, a lot of exercise, a lot of mindfulness therapy. So we're seeing all of this, right? And we're going, Oh, yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. But when I'm, you know, you all are still as, as rheumatologists, it seems very, you know, you have that that little bit of time to talk about the your biologic working. And should we be tapering you off of prednisone? And where if at all does the holistic approach come in with either of you or how are you as rheumatologists supposed to start to be expected to fit that in we're seeing you're supposed to now how does that how does that work in reality
3: it's really hard actually and this is part of the reason why at least within our lupus clinic we're trying to find resources i.e. fundraise to be able to bring in people in like like dietitians You know, physical therapists, even people who do yoga to be able to then provide those as resources through the clinic, because I think patients do look at their medical offices as being able to be the central hub for wellness. Also, when we're not really equipped and frankly, not even trained to be able to provide that but you know since we aren't you know as good physicians do when we don't know what to you know do we, but we at least can point in the right direction where we need to take that person to but oftentimes that is very disjointed in our healthcare system in the US so it's hard for patients to be able to then find something that they can trust so we're, we what we're trying to do is say okay since we're partnering with them you know, you can trust us because we trust them. So it el- eliminates the, some of the, that kind of the uncertainty of making that right step. But this is really hard. I don't know how you guys are doing
5: it, Jeff. Well, it's hard as well. Um, I think an ideal would be to have, you know, a lot of these, you know, dietitians and physical therapists really, you know, almost like uh, the patient sees everyone the same day, kind of multidisciplinary and really gets to delve into the details I think there's some places that are kind of getting closer to that. But, you know, certainly we um, refer to a dietitian or a physical therapist. And, you know, again, there's a lot of barriers as far as what happens when you write that referral and what really happens as far as a lot of people never see them or it takes many weeks and months and the opportunity is sort of lost. So it does mean that uh, in that room, if there's an opportunity to try to you know, broach those issues, you know, we certainly do to the best of our abilities, you know, in the limited time frame, I have to say, I, I actually do try to broach physical fitness as far as just what are you doing and trying to encourage, you know, anything they can to um, either maintain or increase physical activity as part of my sort of health maintenance regimen. I think diet's a little trickier just because it's so complex and <laughs> could take up a lot of time. But uh, yeah, I don't think we have a necessarily a much different solution. But it is something I like to talk about with patients and some patients, it's a real priority. Some patients really don't want to broach it. And some a lot of people are in between.
2: Yeah, I see that almost as an opportunity of, of organizations like ours that are led by people living with diseases, possibly being able to be that middle person, or, or that that stepping stone to, to help our rheumatologists or our rheumatologist we call them and, and fill in I did have another question Jeff you said and I think that Alf feels the same because we talked about it when a patient is prepared it's good when a patient is prepared what does that look like what's the ideal of a patient being prepared if from a rheumatologist perspective
5: well i mean the ones that come to mind are really the ones that have you know 3 to 10 questions Sometimes it's 30 questions, but, um, you know, I think actually just figuring out why am I on this medication? Can I go off this medication? What is the purpose of this medication? You know, what is the, you know, six-month plan as far as medications go? You know, should I, you know, some of it's really unrelated to rheumatology. had some digestive issues. Is this something that is you know, and obviously we can give advice and sometimes it is related to dermatology and they didn't really realize it. So Mm -hmm. I, I actually enjoyed that myself. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Al. Yeah. So
3: I, I, it's um, always the biggest challenge when to, for us time-wise when people come in with that list of 10, 15 questions and you're trying to address each of them as specifically and as thoroughly as possible, We are trying to change to a model where there's more free-flowing communication, but I think Jeff highlights an important point about the willingness or the acceptance of patients to want to do that. A fraction definitely would want to do that. A fraction doesn't want to think about their health and disease until the visit, so that type of mechanism won't really work. For them, and so, but they still have same problem, the similar level of problems and the quantities. So, I'm not 100 sure how we address that aspect. And you know, uh, Tiffany, you mentioned like, oh, you know, there's an opportunity here for you know patient advocacy groups to be able to do this. But again, you still run into the same barrier that they're going to select themselves out potentially because they just don't want to deal with it yeah. as intimately as you guys do. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, this, this is human nature that, you know, we are still trying to understand if we were able to fix this, you know, then we wouldn't have this problem, <laughs> but it, this, is, this is, but it's interesting uh, to me. It's very interesting to see, you know, these differences in, you know, how the relationship of self to health
2: mm-hmm.
3: and, you know, you learn a lot about people on our end for sure.
6: You know what's I think Jeff, it started with when you were talking back a little bit about patients and medications and, you know, the pills and not assuming, I'm going to come right up and ask it. Do you have issues with compliance of patients with medications that you're assuming they're taking their meds and outwardly you're like, this person should look a lot different if they were taking their pill, their mm. meds compliance. I mean, do you For guys, sure. yeah. yeah. Which was covered and- actually in, the, in that youR session, was it? Right. University and actually, yeah, complying to actually take the medications and things like that. Do you run into that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. I was just curious about that because you guys are looking at what the chart says that they're taking and what they yeah. make, and, you know, accountability and actually them being honest yeah. with you guys.
5: Yeah, this is not a, a shock to any physician, I think. Um, <laughs> and we'd rather know than not, honestly. And, you know, when you see a patient two months after starting methotrexate and then they say, well, actually, I, I was scared to start it and I never actually did. That happens. And,
6: and thank if you for think you're on me.
5: methotrexate <laughs> and you never started it, you know, that's going to be a, it, it's just not going to lead anywhere good. I tell them, I just really want to know what you're taking and try to figure out the best plan to make you better. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to be seeing you every month, then you're going to say that I'm not going to take the medication. We got to get you on a med that is going to be agreeable to you.
6: Is it's that for education? Do you think about them knowing more about the medication, like methotrexate, for instance, starting on the pill form versus the injectable or?
5: Well, I really just try to, I mean, everyone's got their own style and it's obviously case by case, but it's really sort of, I'm, I'm really like, well, what were what were your concerns, and what can we do to address those? And sometimes they just say, "I am not going to take it." So
2: then,
6: you're then like, you
5: move on to a new strategy. So yeah,
2: instead solution. of having that
5: conversation, you know, for a half of a year, or maybe I think they're on it for that long. It's really going to be better for everyone if we just get on the same page.
3: Yeah, we just published on this actually uh, with Jared oh. Leon, who yeah. is a Master's of Public Health graduate from St. Louis University is actually moving down to Emory to continue his work, getting his doctorate in public health. He had done some qualitative work, uh, which means a lot of interview work with our patients. And one of the themes that kept on coming up was intentional medical non-concordance. So we don't use the word compliance anymore because that's a paternalistic term. Adherence is even starting to fall out of favor. The term that I'm, I'm now aware of using is now concordance because that okay. well, implies the shared decision-making. Yep. But you know, so he found out it was actually eroded and um, very poor communication avenues between the provider and the patient that then leads the patient to make their own decisions about what to do with certain medications. Because in lupus, we see this, it is rampant. So our own internal analysis, and this is, this matches what other lupus centers have seen, that even though we can tell that they're picking up their scripts, 70% of them have, this is for hydroxychloroquine within the lupus world, have blood levels that are half of what we would expect. Now, you can certainly make the argument that some of this could be biologic, differences in metabolism, but that can't explain all of them. This is a major, major theme in lupus, and it makes you wonder, you know, when you look at trials now where our, our control rate is like around 40% response, whether or not some of that 40% maybe because they have weren't taking their medications before, now they are because they're incentivized because they're part of a clinical trial and getting paid to, and they won't get paid anymore if they don't, Right. And, you know, so again, yeah, there's a lot of these things that are being discussed amongst the, within the lupus world that probably is true for, you know, most chronic diseases about, you know, about this, uh, this issue. So, you know, so I put the link um, in the I chat. Maybe,
2: Thank yeah, you. maybe if
3: you guys want to uh, put that with the description on YouTube. Then. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Just really in keeping with it, which is what I was going to point out in the notes from the session there again, it was called adherence and belief, but let's say in concordance, Um, it says we know patient empowerment in the treatment plan equals higher adherence. Shared decision making is the key element and important part of belief that a patient will continue the treatment that is right for them. So that was sort of the takeaway from, from the session. We just keep seeing the shared decision making over and over and over. And it's great to know that there are rheumatologists out there who are who are practicing that. But we also know, I'll just leave it at this, we also know just from being in patient groups, that there are still a lot of doctors that it's like, this is the way it is and and do this. And then the patient doesn't have the they don't know enough to ask questions. And it's just okay. Thank you. (laughs) They they move on. So I did want to ask one question, then we're going to go over to COVID real quick. It was another session that Katie did a really good job of, of covering here. It was called when I saw a patient with a rheumatic disease for the first time, what has changed in my clinical practice during the years? And it was by Ian McInnes, the president of. of yeah. So I don't know if there was anything, Katie, you wanted to, to point out specific or in there, but I thought it'd be fun to ask Alan and Jeff, like their opinion on on sort of what has changed over the years and, you know, how you've changed and, and how you've seen the practice change.
1: Well, I know in that session, he kind of touched on language and technology. You know, you have to adapt to how people talk about certain things. And, you know, I'm sure way back when when he started, because he made a joke as far as, you know, how long he's been doing it, to say you Google something, you know, that's a newer kind of thing. That happens <laughs> And yeah, and uh, for newer technologies, I think you said something as far as quantum something, like how do you know that language and then how do you know how to communicate that then to the patient? So I thought that was kind of interesting, like the ever-evolving just language of communication, terminology.
3: Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, one of the hardest things that we do with our med students is that they're being taught at the technical level we don't really teach them how to colloquialize that for patients and the public to then provide their input. But then, of course, their feedback, the data that we're getting is going to be colloquial. And sometimes there's errors in translation when you get back to technical. You know, the more experience they have, the less of an issue this becomes. But again, we see this a lot with our trainees. I mean, you guys probably have experienced it. When a younger physician comes in, they start using words you don't know what they mean, Okay. Right. You know, that's that's probably like a yeah. really good example of where they're not doing that translation for you. But certainly a barrier. Yeah.
4: So he at the end of the session, and I'm going to quote what he said. It is far more important to know what person the disease has than what disease the person has.
3: Yeah, I, that's I think that's really accurate. That's a very clever way of putting it.
2: What about you, Jeff? What have you seen? one of the biggest changes you've seen in where rheumatology visits have gone over the last you know, several years, the evolution, if you will?
5: Well, everything's becoming more complex as in everything in life. I feel like the um, documentation has been mostly a hindrance, honestly, as far as that quote is concerned, because there's just so many boxes to check and they change the medical record all the time, and there's all these quality measures, and a lot of them are well-intentioned, but it just creates an you know, incredible amount of bureaucracy that lands in the physician's mm. laps. In an ideal world, it would happen in that 20 minutes, but honestly, it happens in that night and the next day when we're still completing notes, so... I think that's been a, a big difference i know when i was a resident my notes were just basically completed in real time and now seeing 15 patients in a half day it's just not going to happen wow. uh, and i think that that's does great. get in the way of the humanity aspect of medicine
2: that's a really good point
1: What a great discussion on the barriers we all deal with during office visits. It's a good reminder that there are many elements at play and how important communication is in creating a good office visit experience. If you wanna hear more or if you wanna watch the entire conversation, you can check out all of our debriefs on our website at AIarthritis.org conferences. Again, as part of our Go With Us to Conferences program. And you can also find all of these videos on our YouTube channel. As always, This show is about generating conversations between people living with AI arthritis diseases and other stakeholders, in this case, our roomies. So together, as equals, we can solve the problems that impact our lives the most. So pull up a chair. It's your turn to have a seat at the table. You can find us, the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, on social media by searching for at IFAIArthritis. Or if you prefer, you can email us at podcast at aiarthritis.org, and if you're looking for the other episodes of our talk show, they can also be found at our website at aiarthritis.org/talkshow. And while you're there, go ahead and hit that big red button at the top that says donate, because your contributions are what help us change the lives of people all over the world. And remember, just because this episode ends here, it's only the beginning of the conversation. So pull up that chair because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow.
0: AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.airthritis.org. Also, Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events.